Our scripture reading is from Philippians 2, 5 through 13. Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God was highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but as much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come before you now, we ask that you would help us to be ready to confess our sins and find mercy, that you would provide us with all the things that we need, that you would protect us from temptation, and I pray that you would bring your kingdom, Lord, bring it here. Lord, as we read the news this past week, there are many people this morning who are brokenhearted. And I ask that you would help us as a people to turn and to seek you humbly. I pray that you would help us to do that right now in this moment as we look to your word. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would let it come alive in each of us. And I ask these things in the name of Jesus, trusting that you will do above and beyond all that we've asked. Amen. We are continuing our series through the book of Luke this morning, and I would encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 14. And as you go there, whether it's on your phone or whether it's in one of the Bibles around you here, I want to ask you to answer a question, and and I admit that we are in church, so there's only one right answer, right? If I say, what's the most important thing in your life, what's the answer that everyone must give? Okay, God and Jesus will accept both of those answers. Jesus is God. Here's the thing that I want us to, to think about and to consider. That is not the answer that many of us give in the way we act. And culturally, many people would say that that's actually sort of the wrong answer. And that we should actually love God by loving other people first. And so the best and most honorable thing you can do is to put your family first in your life. Uh, and many people would say, my kids, are the, my kids are my world. My kids are the most important thing on earth to me. And in fact, when we hear celebrity interviews, whether it's you know, maybe an actress or, or maybe a musician or, or whoever it is, if someone stands in front of a microphone on camera and says, my family is the most important thing in the world to me, we don't think, what a terrible person, do we? No, we, we esteem them and we revere them and we say, you know, man, that's, that's good. That's right. That's how it should be. Family number one. Absolutely. But that's not what Jesus says. 
And the text that I'm going to be preaching from today in Luke chapter 14, this is probably the hardest passage in maybe all of the Bible to preach on because it comes straight from the mouth of Jesus and it runs right into the things that we value most. And it confronts us with the reality that the church answer that we all just gave is not always the way we live. And Jesus won't tolerate that or allow that. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I want to actually read the whole text. You all know, as I preach normally, I read a portion of the text, and then we talk about it for a little bit, and then I read a little bit more, and we eventually work our way all the way through it. I think the best way to do this is to read the entire text so that you see all of it, and then we're going to talk about it. And my prayer is that everyone here would commit again to love the Lord Jesus first and above everything else in this world. And that in doing that, you would find joy and peace and blessing. So let's read from Luke chapter 14. And we're going to begin in verse 25 and read down through the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 14 begins, excuse me, verse 25 says, Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil Or for the manure pile, it is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I actually want to begin, before we talk about any of the things that I think are so hard to understand, I actually want to begin where Jesus ended. And talk for just a second about that saying, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use. Either for the soil or for the manure pile, it is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That seems strange to us. For us, salt has, I guess, two uses. You either put it in your water softener so that your water is not awful. That's one. But more commonly, we think of it as flavoring. We think of it, this, this is what makes our french fries taste delicious. This is what we put on our eggs. Salt, for us, has a single use, and it's primarily culinary. But in Jesus' day, 
it was actually very common, and in parts of the world, it still is very common to use salt as fertilizer and as a preservative for fertilizer. Now, some of you are immediately thinking, that can't possibly be true. And you might even know when, when the Romans would go in and destroy a city, they would sow the fields with salt so that nothing would grow. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, here's the issue. We use the word salt for one very specific type of salt. But in Jesus' day, salt was actually a blend of different minerals. And some of them would be very enriching for the soil, and some of them dissolved faster than others. So a good salt, when you put it in your field, over the season would gradually dissolve, and its nutrients would replenish the dry ground and make it possible for the seed to grow. It would be enriching and healthy for the soil. A lousy salt would dissolve quickly, and all of the nutrients would wash away. So its value was very minimal at best. And what you would do then, because it had no value at all for the soil, is you would collect whatever was left, and you would throw it in the road, because the only thing it was good for was to keep you from slipping and breaking your neck when there was ice on the street. Jesus is saying at the end of this incredibly difficult text that you and I are called to be useful for the kingdom of God in a very specific way. We are called to be the fertilizer of the earth. I read an article in Christianity Today from a couple years ago. The title was actually, You Are the Manure of the Earth. Somebody said, finally, something I can live up to. But what that means is you are called to be the kind of person that allows the word of God to come alive and grow in the people around you. You are to shape your environment in such a way that when someone hears the word of God, their hearts are ready and receptive. Now I want to admit, we depend on God to do that final work. Only God gives life. But God uses you to spread the seed and to cultivate the soil. Some of you may remember what Paul says. He he likened himself to, to some. He said, some water the soil, some plant, some harvest. And we're all called to be cultivators, to create an environment where the word of God is heard and believed and obeyed. And what Jesus is saying is, if you live your life in such a way that that's not you, that your life does not make it easier for people to hear the word of God and to obey it, then you are of no use in the kingdom of God, and God will discipline you. It may be the case that you're actually not a Christian at all, and he will remove you from among his people. That happens to some people who look like they're Christians but are not. It may be the case that he will discipline you, so the things that you think that you are enjoying, you will grow to hate them and become dissatisfied. Paul talks in Corinthians about the reality that some believers are disciplined so that God calls them home early. They are unfaithful witnesses. They say things that are not true of Christ with the way they live, and God will not tolerate and allow that. And so in the final words of Jesus in this text, he's issuing you a warning. He is saying, 
if salt has lost its taste, that is, if it has no value in the place where it's put, it is thrown away. And my prayer for each of us this morning is that that would not be true of us. That God would use us to enrich the soil of holly. And by his grace, as, as we support missionaries around the world, that our church would be a blessing all over the world because we are the kind of people that magnify the word of Jesus and we hold our Savior up high and he is the most attractive thing about who we are as a church. That this would be rich and fertile soil where people not only come to believe in Jesus as the Savior who died for our sins and rose from the dead, but that they grow and mature. That we don't have a bunch of little seedlings that might wither, but we have new plants that grow to maturity and reproduce and become strong in the grace of God. And that's my challenge to you today, that you would ask again, am I useful? Now, in order to answer that question, I want to go back and look at Jesus' criteria for whether or not you and I are useful. And this is where it gets hard. Go back, if you would, to the beginning of this text in verse 25. And my first point this morning is that you are called to bear a cross. You are called to bear a cross. Look with me again at verses 25 through 27. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Think of what Jesus has just said for a moment. Our tendency is to try to minimize it and to explain it away, to say Jesus did not really mean what he said there. And I want to talk about that in just a second, because those questions are absolutely critical. We have to understand what he meant before we can put it in practice, before we can obey it. But before we do that, I want to point out something in verse 25 about who he said this to. So who is Jesus talking to? Is this something that we should even think about as being relevant for each of us? Look at verse 25. Jesus said, When great crowds accompanied him, he turned and said to them. In other words, Jesus is not setting a high bar just for the elite, you know, the Navy SEALs of the Christian army. He's not saying this to Peter, James, and John privately. He's not even saying it to the 12 apostles. He's not even saying it to the group of 70 that he sent out to preach. This is not just for super spiritual pastors and missionaries. This is not just for church leadership. Jesus said this impossibly hard task to the crowds, to the people that were just coming to hear him speak. This is the exact opposite of the way I want to talk about my faith, right? I want to say it's super easy to come to Jesus. He forgives you. He loves you. And that's it. But Jesus turns to the crowds and says, if you put your family before me, don't even bother. And that's what he said to everyone. And that's why I believe this text applies not just to some people, but to all of us. Jesus says this to me in a very pointed way, and Jesus says this to you in a very pointed way, which means 
we have to understand what he meant. We have to understand what he meant, or, or we're not going to be useful. And we're going to be the kind of people that, that Jesus discards out of the church because we are of no value to him. I want to be very careful how I talk about this. I want to be faithful to what Jesus said. This is what Jesus said. If salt has lost its taste, it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile, and it is thrown away. Well, I don't want to be thrown away, and I don't want anyone here to be thrown away. So what does Jesus mean here? First question, after we understand that he's addressing all of us, is what does it mean when Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his family and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, what does that word hate mean? In fact, somebody asked me this week as, as I was studying this, talking about it to a few people, does hate really mean hate? Is, is that a good translation? Maybe there's just a mistake in how we've rendered this in English. Well, I, one of the things that I would say to you, and, and my prayer is that all of us in our church would love to study the Bible, that, that we would read it with great care and great precision. And, and if you don't know Greek, that, that, I think I'm the only one in our church that knows any Greek, and my Greek is not amazing. There are guys that know a lot better than I do. How, do you. how do you make that kind of decision? Well, the thing that I would recommend to you, number one, is to check three or four or even five translations. I love a wide variety of translations. You can look at the King James if you want to. This is the ESV. I love the ESV. You can look at NIV. There's a newer translation called the CSB that is amazing. I love the New Living Translation. And you know what? Really, all of them say hate. And you know what that means? That means that over 100 scholars, because on average, you've got about 20 people per translation. Over 100 scholars have all looked at this with a greater degree of insight than I have. And all of them have said, the best English word that we can find is hate. The, the Greek word behind it is the word meseo, means I hate. And from that word, we get things like misogyny, someone who hates women, or a misanthrope, someone who just hates humanity in general. That's how it's been used in English. That's the Greek word that underlies it. And in Luke, Jesus has actually used this word before. I want to remind you of, of Luke chapter 6, verse 27. One of the things that we love to quote Jesus saying, Jesus says, Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. The exact same word, you are supposed to do good to those who hate you. Now think for a second. If we minimize what the word hate means in chapter 14, we are minimizing the command that Jesus gave us in chapter 6. So if we say, hate doesn't really mean hate, in chapter 14, we're saying, we don't really have to love people who are really mean to us in chapter 6. Because it goes both ways. Here's the thing. Jesus is understanding enemies as the kind of people who will persecute you for his namesake. You might think of the Apostle Paul. So remember the, the story in Acts. Before Paul comes to know Jesus, he goes around from church to church and he has people thrown in jail. He has Stephen killed. Paul is an enemy of the gospel. He hates Christians. What does hatred mean for Paul? It means he wants them in prison and dead. That's hatred. Those are the enemies that Jesus is saying you and I are called to love. 
And that's what hatred means in chapter 6. So what does hatred mean in chapter 14? Well, I believe it means that there is a division between those who follow Jesus and those who don't. Let me say this very clearly. There are a couple of clues that help us understand what this means. And Jesus teaches that we are to honor our father and mother. He's not saying that you are called to go murder your parents like Paul murdered the early church. Thank God. He's not saying that you are called to have your kids thrown in jail like Paul did to the early church. What he's saying is that when there is a division because you follow Christ and you leave your family behind, you love Christ more than you love your family. And there are two clues in the text that help you understand that. And I believe the word hate helps you understand exactly the agony of that decision. The reality that there will come a time, if you are faithful to Christ, that you will lose something you love. It will happen for everyone here at some point, in some way. And Jesus is encouraging you to count the cost now. And I want to show you that I'm not weakening the text, but I'm being faithful to it. And so I want to point out two things that help us understand this. Hint number one is that Jesus also calls you not only to hate your family, but to hate your own life. Jesus calls you to hate your own life. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Let me remind you again, something we've already seen in Luke, chapter 9, verse 24. Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. In other words, whoever loves his own life Whoever tries to protect his own life will lose it. How do we protect our lives? How do we love our lives? Well, we can do it by trying to build up a certain amount of financial security, and then we trust in our finances rather than our Heavenly Father to provide for us. That's a wrong kind of abuse of money. We can also do this relationally with other people. So we trust in our friends and we trust in our influence because we know the right people to make the right things happen. And so we don't trust in our Heavenly Father. We try to save ourselves by providing for ourselves. And Jesus says, if you do that, whoever tries to save his own life will lose it. Why? Because there's no Savior but God. Your money can't save you. Your friends can't save you. They will let you down at some point. Everyone here remembers the 2008 financial crisis, right? People that had saved lost everything. Money is not a reliable savior. So if that's where your hope is at, it will not be able to protect you, even in this life, let alone in the next life. But what does Jesus say after that? Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, the point of that verse is Jesus wants you to save your life. So whatever he means by calling you to hate your life, his ultimate goal for you is that you would be saved. He doesn't want you to be thrown out. He doesn't want you to be useless. So if he's calling you to hate your own life, it is for your good. And here's what I believe he means. I believe it means the exact same thing when he says that you are called to lose your life for his sake. And for his sake is so incredibly important. 
He's not calling you to a kind of self-loathing where you're just always down on yourself. That's not what Jesus wants for you. What he's calling you to do is recognize that the things that you love naturally will destroy you apart from Christ. There are people who are enormously successful financially, and they are full of misery. There are people that they love their families, and outwardly they have a good life, but it always ends. In fact, in many situations, the better your life is now, the harder it is as you begin to lose it, as people age and as people die. If your hope is in building a life here, you have no hope. But if you are willing to lose your life for the sake of Christ, to recognize that your sinfulness would kill you, and so you repent of your sins and you believe in Christ, you will find new life in Christ that can never be taken away from you. So Jesus calls you to hate your own life, to admit that you don't have the wisdom or the means to save yourself. That you are cut off and separated from God and the only thing that can bridge that separation is the blood of Jesus given to you freely as a gift. That's the only way you can find forgiveness and peace with God. And when you, by faith, accept his life, your life belongs to him. So you lose your life by saying, I can't do this on my own. I need your forgiveness. And when you're given his life, Your life no longer belongs to you, it belongs to him, and you are called to live for him. So if King Jesus asks you to give something up, you don't say, well, no, I'd rather not. You give it up because he gave himself for you generously. And that's the next clue within our text. Jesus calls you to hate your own life and even your family as you follow him. Notice again, he says that we are to come to him. And then he describes, verse 27, we are called to bear our own crosses and come after him. In other words, he leads the way here. How did Jesus lead the way here? Well, first, he was willing as... Angela read from the book of Philippians, he was willing to leave the comfort of heaven and the wealth and the joy that was with his father in glory. And he was willing to be born in a crummy world that was full of violence, that was full of horrible things. And so he, in a sense, hated his own life in the fact that he was willing to leave everything to accomplish your salvation and my salvation. Not only did he leave the glory of heaven... He willfully left his earthly family. You can see that at least three times in Luke's gospel. Maybe four if you count the cross, and we'll get there in just a second. But first you see it when he's a 12-year-old boy. Remember, he stays at the temple, and his parents go crazy, and they say, where are you? What are you? And he says, well, I had to be about my father's business. And they don't understand that his mission is not just to be a good little boy as part of their family. His mission is to grow up and die for all of God's people. Mary is even told before he's born, or excuse me, right after he's born, that that a sword will pierce her heart, that there's going to be a division between mother and son. And as you see Jesus begin his ministry, you see there are a couple times that Mary pops up. And and one time, they even accuse him of being crazy. 
And, and you remember the, the passage we already talked about a couple of weeks ago where they say, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside. He's ministering, he's healing people, he's preaching, he's teaching. And they say, hey, your mother and brothers are here. And he looks at him and he goes, well, who are my mother and brothers but the people who hear the word of God and keep it? In other words, he publicly denies his blood family and says, no, hearing the word of God and keeping it is more important than me going out to my mother right now. That's Jesus saying that his life and ministry and mission were more important than his mother. So if you want to know how you and I are called to do this, we are called to be faithful to Christ the exact same way that Christ was faithful for you. Not only in leaving the wealth of heaven, not only in being willing to divide his earthly family, but also in being willing to go all the way to the cross. So Jesus is willing to die on a cross for you and give up his literal life. He is willing to suffer absolute agony so that he can accomplish your salvation. Do you think that he loved the torture of the cross? No. But he was willing to hate his own life so that he could accomplish your salvation. So that he could glorify the Father with his perfect obedience. So the most important way that we understand this text is by looking at what Jesus did and being willing to follow after him. That God's call on your life and God's call on my life is the most important thing in the world. And anything that competes with that must be abandoned. That's true of your life. That's true of your family. If your family keeps you from Christ, you need to cut ties with your family. If your family keeps you from obedient service, you need to cut ties with your family. Christ's call on your life is greater. No one else has died for you and risen from the dead and given you life. Jesus says, if you're going to come after him, you have to be willing to do the same. And I would say to you, it is so much better to live this life in light of eternity and the joy that's on the other side of life than to have a perfect life now. Recognize that sometimes faithfulness to Christ will cause you division. If it hasn't already, it will. And be prepared to count the cost. Jesus has already said there's division in family. You remember Luke chapter 12. He said, I didn't come to bring peace, but division. He's going to turn father against son, son against father. He describes following him will cause violent division. There, there are places in the world where that still happens. I heard a story last January about a, a, a family from the United Arab Emirates where she came to Christ and was baptized, and her husband was still a Muslim, and he witnessed her baptism, and he personally didn't care. He, he wasn't that faithful of a Muslim in one sense. So he was just fine with his wife being willing to follow Christ. And he didn't think that anyone he knew would care. So he told his family, yeah, my wife was baptized. And his family had death threats put on her life. And so they both had to literally leave everything and flee to a refugee camp. Well, Max Stiles, he's the pastor that was telling us this story at this conference. Max Stiles was, was preaching to us in Minneapolis. He said he got a text message from her that morning from a refugee camp, literally. 
describing how precious and how sweet Jesus was to both of them. That her husband had found Christ and the hope of Christ as they left and lost everything else. And that they were so thankful for Jesus and to be growing in their faith and knowing how their Savior would care for them and provide for them, even in a refugee camp. That happens today. And in one sense, even a story that happened this year, 2019, seems unreal to us because we don't live in a culture like that. We don't understand honor killings. That's horrifying to us. But I would say many people here, maybe everyone here, has experienced some division already. Sometimes division comes when people are called to ministry. I know of a missionary couple that they served in Yemen, and some of their friends who were in Yemen, you know, they would Skype home, and their parents would say to them, every day that you stay in Yemen with our grandkids is a dagger in our hearts. What are you doing? Why are you there? Sometimes that division comes as a result of faithfulness to ministry, but more often for us, It happens in divided households where one spouse loves Jesus and the other is cold or maybe even hostile. One spouse longs to serve Jesus and the other spouse says, you're not not being a faithful father. You're not being a faithful mother. Church is too important to you right now. Sometimes division happens because kids follow the Lord and others walk away. So a brother and a sister go different ways. And for parents who are faithful, that's agony because you see your kids walking away and you're powerless to stop it. And when that happens, there's always a temptation for you and me to be faithful to family instead of to Christ. To say, you know, many roads lead to Rome. God is patient, God is love, God is kind, he'll understand. And we dismiss the clear teachings of Scripture that that if you are not faithful to Christ, there is no hope. And so I would say that there are probably many divided homes here, and I want to speak to you very directly. If you're part of a divided home striving to be faithful, I want to encourage you. Jesus will support you. He will give you the strength that you need. We as your church family love you and we want to support you and pray for you and love you and help you in any way that you can. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. And next week, we're going to be in Luke 15. We're going to see the amazing generosity of the Father. We're going to see his passionate love to go after sinners who are unfaithful. And I don't want to minimize that this week. We have a God who loves to save sinners. But before we go there, we've got to be faithful to what Jesus is saying now. So recognize that you are called to a radical kind of obedience Recognize that you need to be faithful to Christ. How are you faithful to Christ? Well, your relationships are a huge clue. I want to say very clearly, you are called to worship Jesus every day with your life. Sometimes it can be as small as giving thanks before a meal and being willing to pray in in front of someone who's not a believer. Sometimes... It means that that people will see you reading your Bible and understand that that's very important to you. That's how you hear from God. Sometimes it will be an act of service in the church that you're not able to do something because you've committed to serve the Lord in the context of your church. 
And I want to say to you very clearly, the Bible teaches that God gives every believer gifts for service, that all of us are called to build the kingdom together, that we are a body. And so if Jesus has given you a gift for the the work of the ministry and you aren't using it, you are not following after Christ. If you are not serving in the church in some way, you are not following after Christ. You are following something else. And it doesn't matter if it's something as good as your family that keeps you from Christ. Jesus says, if you, if you love your wife and kids more than you love him, that you're not worthy of him. And it's not that he doesn't want you to love your wife, and it's not that he doesn't want you to love your kids. It's that you have to get it in the right order. And I want to be very clear, as I preach this to you, it also affects me. There are going to be times in my life where I'm faithful to my family, and people in the church are going to say, hey, where were you? Why didn't you come to this? And I say, you know what? I was trying to be a good dad. I was trying to be a good husband. And that's not easy. And I'm called to be a faithful husband, and I'm called to be a faithful dad. And if that becomes too big in my life, there's a danger that I would neglect the church. And so I would ask that you would pray for me, that God would keep me faithful. Here's the flip side of it. There are going to be times where I'm very faithful to a number of things at the church, and my wife is going to come to me and say, Hey, you're called to be a husband and a dad. If you're at the church so much that you're failing in those obligations, you're not worthy of being a pastor. That's what the scriptures clearly teach. And so I would ask that you would pray for me, but recognize that this is not just for pastors. This is also for you. God calls you to be a faithful follower of Christ, to use the gifts that he's given you to build the kingdom. And my prayer is that you would assess that openly and honestly. It's not just about your relationships. Jesus calls you not only to put him before your family, he calls you to put him before all of your things. He says you have to renounce all you have. Jesus doesn't just ask you for 10%. He says he needs it all. Look at this next point from verse 28 to 33. He says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, you need to recognize the high cost of following Christ in advance. Recognize that Jesus wants all of you. You know, we have a a joke in in our culture. You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? You, You can't take your things with you. I would say in this context, Jesus has called you to carry a cross. You never saw someone carrying a cross packing a suitcase, His call to you is that you would die to yourself. Why is that necessary? Because your sin is killing you. You have to die. But the good news is, he's done it for you. So, 
As Christians, we're called to be baptized, right? That's a picture of our death. My sin was fatal, and so I died. But because of what Jesus did for me, I came up out of the water in new life. So I have new life, but my life does not belong to me. I live for him, which means my stuff does not belong to me. It belongs to God. And my stuff needs to be used for his service as well. Luke is super clear about the danger of things that keep people out of heaven. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? That's in chapter 18. We haven't covered it yet, but many of you are going to be familiar with it. This young guy comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what do I have to do to gain eternal life? Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And he says, you know, I think I've done all that. And Jesus said, one thing you lack, sell your possessions and give to the poor and come follow me. And the young man leaves. Why? Because he had many possessions. He loved his stuff more than Jesus. And it kept him from knowing God. You and I are faced with the exact same choice. Jesus says in Luke 16, 13, you cannot love both God and money. And if this is an issue for you, you might literally need to sell your stuff. Don't hang on to stuff that you can't keep and lose your soul. Do not worship your things and put Christ second and act like you've been faithful. So what do we do with this? We're we're about to take communion. And communion is an amazing opportunity to remember that Jesus gave everything for you. And if Jesus gave everything for you and he calls you to give up everything as he offers you life, And eternal life. And and I'll remind you, you know, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. God wants to bless you in some ways now and in many ways in the next life. So trust that the, the God who gave his son for you, as he calls you to this kind of sacrifice, it's for your good. And I want to urge you to heed the warning of Jesus to recognize that if we are not useful, that God will discipline us. Every person needs to hear this message. I want to urge you to recognize the danger of your sin, and as we prepare for communion, to repent and ask God to forgive you. I want to urge you, if you are a believer, maybe you need to make this decision again. Maybe in the past, someone has encouraged you, that you need to go all in and give your life to Jesus completely. But it is so easy to let good things creep in and come between you and Jesus. It's easy for me, it's easy for you. So in the quietness of this moment as we prepare for communion, would you ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart and reveal your sin? Would you be willing to confess your sin and to commit again to picking up your cross daily and following after him? Would you be willing to faithfully serve the Lord with the things that he's given you? And would you remember that Jesus gave his life for you? And so now you ought to live like it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the reminder of your love for us in communion. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for those times 
that we have loved our families more than you. I pray that you would forgive us for the times when we have worshipped our things instead of you who gave us those things. And God, I ask you that for myself and for the people of our church here, that you would remove the things from us that keep us from you. No matter how painful, I ask that you would do what's necessary in us to save us. Lead us in repentance and Lord, lead us in joy as we follow after Christ. And we will praise you for all of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've just proclaimed the Lord's death. I love that phrase, until he comes. You know, when somebody dies, you don't normally see them again. But we will see Jesus because he was raised to life and he's coming for us. And I want to dismiss you with a couple of verses here so that we can go in the power of the Spirit and walk in obedience to Christ. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Go in peace.